Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like to welcome you to Crosswinds. If you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And before we jump into our study this morning, I'd like those of you who are married to just imaginatively go back with me in time. Go back in time to the day that you were married. Remember that day? When, uh, guys, remember when your, your wife, she wore that beautiful dress, that just wonderful, drop-dead gorgeous? And ladies, remember when he wore the tux? Just so you know, ladies, you don't get us in tuxes often. We men sort of avoid those things. But you remember that? And remember when you were gathered and you had your family, you had your friends, and maybe you were in a church because you were going to make a covenant. You're going to enter into what is called a marital covenant, a binding relational agreement. And if it was uh, done as a traditional wedding, it includes the words, you know, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, and in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I commit to be there in a faithful, undying love for you. Now, if your pastor who did your premarital counseling was worth his salt, he certainly didn't tell you that marriage was a 50-50 proposition, you know, where you give 50% and they give 50% and we just sort of meet in the middle. And they didn't tell you it was a 60-40 proposition. What they told you, or hopefully the pastor told you, was 100% each way. And that you were promising to be faithful and to love unconditionally your spouse, even when they failed you, even when they messed up and they, they hurt you and you wanted to withdraw your love, you promised you wouldn't withdraw your love and faithfulness for them. Now, when I got married, it was a long time ago. And in fact, let me show you just for the fun of it. This is a, what it looked like my wife and I got married. As you can see, there you go. Yeah. As you can see, my wife has not aged a bit. I tell her she's like a fine wine. She's actually gotten better over the years. As for me, uh, I look like I was in high school. Uh, so she was probably the cradle robber in the group. But thanks, Jeremy. That was in 1993. A lot of water has gone under the bridge since 1993. But I remember in my premarital counseling, the pastor who did that said to us, he says, you will love your spouse, if things go like they should, you will love your spouse more 20 years after your marriage, than, tw than a, 20 years after your wedding, than on your wedding. And I thought the guy was like cracked. I'm like, all right, I'm in my 20s, I'm getting married, I am filled with testosterone. I, in particular, can't wait for the wedding night. You know, like, how could I love my woman more? And how could we love each other more 20 years later when we're starting to get old and wrinkly? And I'm here to tell you that I think he was actually right. I got a couple amens out there. See, if you've been married for a while, you know that actually what happens is that... Um, the moment you're married is wonderful, but what happens over time, those bonds of your marriage get tested. You go through hard relational difficulties. 
and the strength of those bonds. You see how good they are. Uh, the mediocrity of life and routine just sort of nibbles away at those things. And then you fail one another and you hurt them miserably. You hurt your spouse and you're thinking, you know, they should just walk away from me. I am such a failure. I've been so many things wrong. And they don't. They hold on tight. And what happens is, over time, this new kind of love gets birthed because you know that that covenant love has been tested and proven strong and proven true. You love your spouse more 20 years after your wedding day than before. As a church, we are studying through the book of Genesis, and we've been following Abram for the last few weeks. And in Genesis chapter 15, we found that God entered into a covenant relationship with Abram. If you remember that blood oath covenant that God made, and He says, I promise that I will be faithful to my word. I promise that you will have a son from your very own body. I promise you will inherit this land. And, you know, nothing, nothing is going to break my promise. And beginning to see some parallels here. And what happened in Genesis chapter 16 that we looked at last week? Abram majorly tested that promise. He screwed up big time. Slept with the maid. And committed adultery. Tried to find a child his own way. And you, you, most of us think if we were God, we'd be like, oh, I just made a blood oath promise to you. And you go and you mess it up. I'd like, give up. Like, you're done. Walk away. But that is not what God does. Today, as we enter Genesis chapter 17, we find that what God does is He's faithful to His promise, His covenant love for Abram. In fact, He reaffirms that covenant love in spite of His failure. And He strengthens that covenant love in spite of Abram's failure. Today, as we work our way through Genesis 17, we're going to learn about God's covenant love to Abram and how strong that is and what that means. But along the way, we're also going to learn about the same kind of covenant love that God calls us to have to a spouse, an undying love that's just as faithful in spite of failures as God's love is to us. Amen? Let's go ahead and jump into the text here. If you are following along in your outlines, we're going to start at the very top. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Let's start at the very top. How old is Abram? 99. Now, you probably may not have realized this, but last chapter, chapter 16, how old was Abram? Does anybody remember? 86. So, there is a 13-year gap between the close of Genesis chapter 16 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 17. A 13-year gap in Abram's life where God is apparently... Silence, where life is just routine, and he wonders if God is actually there. 
here's what happens. When, when we read the Bible, doesn't it seem like there's a miracle happening on just about every page? It's like a constant string of things where God shows up and God does this and God does that. And we forget that the Bible is intentionally selective. Selective of events that happened over a long period of time. And then it pushes them all together. Like, did you realize that we have been studying Abram's life and it's been five chapters? In fact, if you were reading this in the Bible at home, you could do it in 15 minutes. But it covers 24 years. You see, God wasn't showing up every five minutes in Abram's life. God was showing up at certain periods of time, and there's long gaps of silence between those periods. In fact, a 13-year long gap of silence between Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 17. And many of us get frustrated. We get frustrated because it seems like life gets routine, and God doesn't seem to show up all the time. You know, it's the routine. You get up at the same time. You eat the same breakfast. You empty the same cat box. You take the same dog for a walk. Your kids go to school, you know, and it's the same thing day after day. You're like, God, why don't you show up in my life? And I, I go to church, and it's like routine. Folks, you need to understand that a lot of life is routine. God shows up on occasions in real big and powerful ways, but a lot of times there's gaps of silence and routine in between. That is the normal way life works. But here's what you need to know, and if you're filling in the blanks, this is the first one. When God is silent, it doesn't mean He isn't working. When God is silent, it doesn't mean He isn't working. Abram and Sarai they probably felt that God had forgotten them. Thirteen years since they last heard from God. But God had not forgotten them. And as you're going to see, this is very important, God had a good reason for His long period of silence in their life. We're going to discover it in a moment. Let's go a little further into uh, the first verse here. The Lord appears to Abram, and he announces himself by a name. He says, I am God Almighty. If you're reading this in the English, you just breeze right through that. Who cares? God Almighty. Not Bruce Almighty. That was a movie. This is God Almighty. But if you're reading this in the Hebrew, something sticks out. He says, I am El Shaddai. This is the first time God has revealed himself by that name in the Bible. And if you know how the Bible goes, especially in the Old Testament, God reveals Himself by different names at different times because the names of God teach us about the character of God. He says, Abram, my name is God Almighty, literally the God of all power. He's essentially saying, I am the God who can do anything no matter what the opposition you face. If you're taking notes, write that down. I am the God who can do anything, no matter what is the opposition you face. God identifies himself 48 times in the Bible by the name of El Shaddai. 31 of those 48 times occur in the book of Job. Think about this. What kind of life was Job facing? Job's kids had died. Job's business 
was crushed. Eventually, Job's health was taken away. He had one of those loving and encouraging wives who told him to curse God and die. From everything he sees around him, life is hopeless. But God says, don't look at your circumstances. Look at me. Know my name. I am El Shaddai. I can do anything and I can rescue anyone. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at me. And if you know the story of Job, how does the, sto the story of Job end? Does God rescue him? Does God turn it all around in spite of the incredibly humanly hopeless circumstances? Exactly. In fact, you start to notice that God reveals himself this way consistently through the Bible. The Israelites are in Egypt. It's a completely hopeless circumstance. They're in slavery by a superpower of the world. And God's like, uh, don't look around at you. Look at my name. I can do anything. I can rescue anyone. In fact, the more hopeless the circumstance, the more I like it. They come out of Egypt. They have the Egyptian army at their backside, the Red Sea at their front side. There's no hope. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at me and my name. I'm the God who can do anything and save anyone. You're not going to expect this. I'm going to split the Red Sea so you can go through it on dry ground. You see, this is God's name. And here for the first time, God tells Abram that that's who he is. And all of a sudden, you have to realize this makes Abram's life into complete sense. Abram and Sarai have been trying to have kids since they were 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. Never could have them. Now it says their bodies are as good as dead. He's 100. She's 90. And all of a sudden, it becomes apparent why God didn't let them have kids earlier. Because what God was doing is letting their life get to the time where it was completely humanly hopeless, so their lives could be the platform upon which he depicts to the waiting world who he is, El Shaddai, the God who can rescue anyone out of anything, even completely humanly hopeless circumstances. In fact, that's why God let Abram and Sarai not conceive. See, the whole time they thought God had forgotten about them. And God didn't know what he was doing, but God knew exactly what he was doing, getting them into this hopeless position. And folks, what happened in the Bible is happening in our lives. What happened in Abram and Sarai's lives is for us to look back and see that God does rescue us out of hopeless times to make his name more glorified and magnified through our lives. But it happens to us in our lives too. If you are a Christian... I guarantee you, sometime in your life, not all the time, remember like 15-year gap or 13-year gaps in Abram and Sarai's life when God shows up, sometime in your life, you will get to the point of utter hopelessness, that there is no way you make it through unless God shows up. And many times, in His graciousness, He does. So you know Him as El Shaddai, the God who can do anything save anyone. We haven't had this happen in our lives personally, in our family, too much, but it does happen. And 
I used to tell this story when I first came here to Crossman's, and it's been a while since I told it, so I'll tell you the story so you know the background with Cindy and I. Before we moved here, um, I served at another church, and um, Cindy, we had three little kids at home, and she began noticing black streaks under her fingernails. And I was like, that's weird. Like, what is that? And she showed me. I don't know what it was. And then we started to notice the tip of her finger started to turn black. And her fingers started to just hurt and ache. And the blackness continued down her fingers. And it just started to rot. And this necrosis and just rotting of the flesh. And to give you an idea what it looked like, it looked like a black lollipop on some of her fingers. Where the nail was this big thing on the end just because of the shape of the nail. But the flesh had all rotted down to the bone. And she would be on the couch and just crying in pain and agony. And we had gone to the doctor. They had diagnosed her with an autoimmune disease. We had gone to specialists. And then I remember the, the, the appointment we had with the one specialist. She was real candid. And she said, I just want to prepare you for this. But if this continues and goes into your hand, we're going to have to cut off your fingers. And we're going to maybe have to deal with the fact that this may actually take your life. And when you have three little kids at home, and your mother and your wife is all you need, that sort of hits you like a ton of bricks. And we prayed and said, there's no cure. They don't know what to do with it. They can't try to diagnose the whole thing to know what to do with it. And we were at the end of our rope. God, you... you you have a right to take her life because you gave her her life. We leave it in your hands, but we ask that you would be merciful and come to our rescue. And I remember uh, in the church, the church was so cool. They had a special service, and they, they prayed, and they anointed her with oil up front. And the elders, we, we prayed for her that God would somehow show up. And you know how as a pastor, I'll just admit, even though you, you know what it says in James about praying and anointing with oil, you sort of do it, but you're like not necessarily expecting anything super miraculous to happen because you don't totally understand it, and James doesn't explain it all. You just do it out of obedience. And so I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what God you're going to do. But we went to the next appointment where they were scheduling the amputation uh, for some of her fingers. And the doctor gets out a ruler to see how much further it progressed, looked at her chart, got the ruler out again, went back and forth, and she said, the blackness is actually starting to go backwards. The flesh is starting to regrow on her finger. I'm just going to, we're not going to do the amputation right now. Let me see what happens in two weeks. Came back in two weeks and more flesh had regrown on her finger. And over the space of the next few months, all the flesh regrew up her fingers. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office, and the doctor totally candidly said to us, I have no idea what happened to you. I don't know why the flesh is regrown on your fingers. I have no medical explanation for it. <laughs> now, the cool part was to see my wife, because she definitely had an explanation for it. Yeah, and it was a total hallelujah time. Let me tell you, we prayed and God did a miracle and God has restored this, you know, restored the flesh on my hands. And amen, we thank God for that. But, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't happen all the time in our lives. There's long periods of just plain routine where you get up, make breakfast, empty the cat box, pack the kids' lunches, and nothing special happens. You just go through obedience. But there are times that God shows up and He proclaims His name as El Shaddai. I'm the one who can do anything, save anyone. And if you talk to some people who have been a seasoned Christian for a while in here at Crosswinds, you will find they have stories just like I have stories. Not many of them, but it happens. It happens. And here is what is happening. 
God shows up. If you want to fill in the next blank, it's this. God's name is El Shaddai. He loves to save against insurmountable odds. Now, God continues, and He talks about His covenant. Is this. He says, I am God Almighty, and He says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And this is where it sounds a little funny. It sounds like he's going to make a new covenant. Literally, the um, terms here, he's going, I'm going to give and I'm going to expand upon my covenant. Now, here's where you find all of a sudden there's a huge parallel between the covenant of marriage that we entered into and the covenant that God makes with Abram. Like, for instance, Genesis chapter 15, when the covenant begins, it was an unbreakable covenant oath. For better or for worse, God would be there and see it through. Isn't that the marriage covenant we enter into? For better or for worse, I will be there. I will see it through. In Genesis chapter 17, where we're at today, what we find is even though it's an unconditional covenant, it requires Abram's obedience to enjoy the blessings of it. Isn't that the same way in marriage? Even though you enter into an unconditional covenant with your spouse, it requires your obedience to the covenant to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. This means, guys, like you don't go around town and start picking up chicks when you're married. Because if you pick up chicks when you're married, do you enjoy the blessings of your marital covenant when you come home and your wife finds out you're picking up chicks? Yeah, that's right. She gets out the rolling pin, right, Sherry? You take Tom out, that's right. You don't enjoy the blessings of the covenant unless you're living in obedience to the covenant. This is what God says to Abram. You know, you live blameless before me. You walk before me. This is live in relationship to me. Don't rebel against me, and I will let you enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Here's the point. God's covenant is not based upon obedience, but it requires obedience to experience its blessings. Just like a marriage covenant. Now, I told you there's a lot of parallels between God entering into a covenant with Abram and the marriage covenant. Like, the next thing is, when we enter into a marriage covenant, it's such a big deal, it changes our names, doesn't it? The wife takes on the last name of her husband. But in some ways, also, the husband takes on a new name. He's no longer known as Mr. X but now he, they are known as Mr. and Mrs. Their names are joined together. And in the same way, this is such a big deal that Abram's name changes. Let me show you. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
Last week, we learned what the name of Abram means. Literally, it means exalted father. Today, we would call it super dad. So the funny part was here was Abram by the name of super dad on his coffee mug, but he has no kids. God ups the ante. He says, this covenant I'm entering into with you is so big, and it's going to produce so many descendants. We're not going to call you super dad. We're going to call you father of multitudes. There's going to be like tons of people who are going to look back to you as your for the forefather, which I think is sort of funny at this point because he's still 99 and childless. <laughs> but this is what God says. Now, as you're going to see in a few minutes, the son of the promise is Isaac. And from Isaac, this, everything is going to explode. But look back, and you study this in Scripture. What people groups look back to Abram as their father, the one who started them? The Israelites, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites. The list can go on and on. Even if you are a Christian today, you look back to Abram as our forefather. Because he is the one who was saved by faith, just as we are saved by faith. So it's true. He does become a father of multitudes, more than he could ever count. Not only that, but Sarai gets a name change as well to reflect this new covenant. And God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. This is a little difficult. Last week, we learned that Sarai means princess. Sarah means princess. So, like, did her name actually change? Besides, they put an H on the end. Well, here's what I can tell from the best research I've done. Sarai means princess as from her origin, like coming from royalty. Sarah means princess as in mother of kings. Like one is from where you came from and one is where you're going. So that's how they come together. Major point to take away here. A covenant involves a new name because it represents a new identity. Isn't that true? That's why in marriage... We get a new name because it's so big, it represents a new identity. But a covenant doesn't just involve a name change. It involves a sign of the covenant. There's something that shows people that you're in a covenant relationship. Like, here is the sign of my marital covenant relationship. It's a wedding ring. So you go out in public and people see you in a wedding ring, you're like, okay, they're taken. No point in flirting right now. Remember, there's parallels here. When Abram gets into this covenant with God, God gives him a sign that he is in the covenant. And by the way, it's a little more rigorous than just wearing a wedding ring. So let's read about it. God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house 
or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, here comes the fun part of the sermon. Now, uh, by the way, if you see the elders at the back door with Ramdan preaching and they grab me, you know this section did not go well. So plenty of opportunities to put your foot in your mouth when it comes to talking about circumcision. Now, just so you know, uh, every covenant has a sign with it that it exists. That's just the way it is in the Bible. Remember Noah, after the flood, he got the sign of the covenant, which was what? The rainbow. Okay. If you are a Christian, you take communion which is part of the sign of the covenant. You're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you take bread and you take wine, and then the pastor says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which was said for you. The new covenant that is in my blood. That's the sign that you're in the covenant. So Abram gets a sign, and it's circumcision. Now, I'm sure at this point he'd be willing to swap with Noah in a heartbeat. I mean, I'll take the rainbow any day. Why are we going here? A couple things to tell you. A covenant involves a sign to memorialize the relationship. And what God does is He takes something that is already existing in life and He imbues it with special meaning to bring you back to the fact you're in that relationship. Like a ring. No big deal, right? But this one's special. Uh, Bread and wine. Nothing special except now. It reminds you of what Christ's body and blood and your relationship with God is through this. And in this case, he takes something existing and imbues it with special meaning, circumcision. So if you are thinking, well, this is the first time circumcision has ever happened, not true. Did some historical research. Actually, we find circumcision is all the way back to 2800 B.C. done by the Syrians. Now, I just want to take, as we go through this circumcision section, and do a little Q&A on circumcision. Now, so in Iowa, to make the winter pass a little better, what we do is things like the winter games. So everybody runs around on a block of ice and say they're having fun. At church, we talk about circumcision in January. And that should hopefully make life a little more interesting. And by the way, if I was just a topical preacher, I guarantee you I would not talk about this. But when you work your way consecutively through Scripture... You happen to find things that you just have to talk about, and this is one of them. So here we go. Q&A on circumcision. And by the way, I'm asking the questions. Don't trust you on this one. It put me in a bad way. Number one, why did God choose circumcision as a sign of the covenant? Like, why did He not just say, all of your males get to wear nasal rings? Or all you males get to have a belly button tattoo or something like that? Well, why circumcision? I don't know exactly, but here's some thoughts. The issue that Abram struggled with was procreation. The sign of the covenant is on that very part of his body. Every male in his house that is part of this covenant, whenever they look in the mirror, they're reminded that they are part of this covenant community. They're reminded 
that their sexuality is not for them. They are reminded that their sexuality is for the glory of God. They are reminded that any children that they bear are part of the covenant. And I think the, the, the mark being on this particular part of a man's body is reminding him that his sexuality and his identity is that he is a man set apart for God. And by the way, it seems like if uh, men are able to set this particular part of their body apart for God, the rest of their life falls in line nicely thereafter. In other words, it seems like this is the particular part of their body that the men do the most sin or they do the most blessing. Now, incidentally, I like the way God says this. He says, what happens if you refuse circumcision? You'll be cut off from among the people. By the way, that's God's humor, not mine, if you caught it. Second question about circumcision. Does God want men just circumcised in their body? Good audience response question. Uh, is he just all about a particular body part being a particular way? And as Tom said, no. What God is looking for is the circumcision of their heart. Just like this particular ring doesn't make me married, but what makes me married is the covenant between my wife and I. And all this ring in is a little sign on the outside of the covenant that exists on the inside. What God wants is His men set apart for God in their hearts. And the sign on the outside is just a little indication of what should be on the inside. Sometimes young men will talk to me and they'll talk to me about tattoos. You know, like, you know, dude, I want to get a tattoo. And, you know, I love Jesus, so I want to get a big cross and I want to get a Bible verse and all this kind of stuff so people know that I'm a Jesus guy. And I'm like, you know, first of all, you may already have the original sign of the covenant. Don't know, but, you know... And you don't need the tattoo. Uh, secondly, God really doesn't care that much about the pat tattoo. What He cares about is the heart that is on the inside rather than the sign that is on the outside. That's what matters as a man of God. Look at the Scriptures say, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Or, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter." So when it comes to, do I have a big tattoo of a cross or any kind of a Bible verse on me? What really matters is your heart. When it comes to wearing one of those Christian t-shirts, like it has a Pepsi, the choice of a new generation, instead of it's Jesus, the choice of a new generation, what doesn't really matter is the Christian t-shirt. What matters is the heart that's under the shirt. When it comes to those bumper stickers that you see in the back of cars, you know, like, honk if you love Jesus, Jesus is not impressed with that bumper sticker. What he's impressed with is the heart of the driver. Isn't that true? It's a matter of the heart. Number three, third question. Remember, I'm asking the questions, not you in this area. i got to be safe. 
Why did God want children of the covenant circumcised on the eighth day? Good question. Uh, Quite honestly, I don't exactly know. But I do have some thoughts. The Bible is very clear, when we studied it earlier, on a literal seven-day creation week. Jesus Christ was born on a Sunday. And He is literally the firstborn of the new creation week. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are part of the new creation. The old creation was the first seven days. What begins on the eighth day? The new creation. In, in fact, what this sign is saying is, you're part of the covenant with God. You're part of that new creation covenant community. And that's why I think it's done on the eighth day. I'm not definitive about this. I haven't seen many people come up with good answers, but that's what I think it is. I think it because it all points forward to Jesus Christ and part of the New Covenant community. One thing I do know, just having a little fun with you guys here, is uh, that Jews are not the only ones who followed the practice of circumcision. In fact, the Arabs also followed the practice of circumcision, and they do to this day, except they wait till kids are a little bit older to be circumcised. Yeah, ouch is right. Uh, just wait till you hear what goes on next. Um, they look and they say, well, Ishmael, who was our forefather, he was circumcised when he was 13 years old, when he was a teenager. So their typical practice is we want to wait till somebody is age 13 to circumcise them. Now, you wonder why there's many young Arab men that are angry. <laughs> I mean, does this explain it or not? I mean, this has got to scar a kid for life. So if you're going to have to be circumcised, trust me, the eighth day is much better. I'm going the Isaac method. That's the way it is to go. And hopefully you guys don't get too offended by my humor. It was all just tongue-in-cheek. But it is true about the 13-year-old. Next question. Do Christians need to be circumcised? Ah, good question. You just read in Genesis chapter 17 that if you are part of the covenant community, it's no questions asked. You must be circumcised. In fact, you come into the New Testament, this is a huge debate because you have all these Gentiles starting to follow Jesus and the Jewish guys who are the church leaders are like, this is great. We love everybody coming to church. We love the church is growing. People love Jesus. Let's go through the membership class. They go through the membership class and on the last day they say, there's one more thing we forgot to tell you about. You need to be circumcised. And you can see all the Gentile guys go completely white in the face. Like, I love Jesus, but I'm not joining your church. In fact, this gives birth to what is one of the first church councils where all these church leaders get together. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. It's the uh, Jerusalem council. And the big question is, do you need to be circumcised to be a Christian? Does Genesis chapter 17 need to continue to be followed by Christians? And thankfully, I can tell you, the definitive answer of the council was No. You don't need to be circumcised. In fact, it's faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Now, why did they come to this conclusion? They were just looking at how God was working. Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and upon his household, and 
the Holy Spirit is not making a differentiation, they notice, between circumcised Jewish men and uncircumcised Gentile men. That He's working the same way back and forth. And so they're like, well, it's all about Jesus. Jesus plus nothing else. So you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Now, interestingly, people had a real hard time accepting that. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters, again and again, he is saying that you do not need to be circumcised to be a Christian. The book of Galatians is one of the foremost in this area. In fact, he says this in Galatians 6, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation through Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. Another question. One more. Is there anything that corresponds to circumcision today? You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian, but is there any kind of sign that we're in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ that should be on the outside? Yes. It's called baptism and communion. Baptism is a public sign that you have trusted in Jesus Christ and that you've been buried with Christ and that you have now been raised to new life with Christ. That's why we do baptism by immersion. Communion. It's a time when you go back to your relationship with Christ and you do it publicly. Bread and wine. In fact, look how the Scriptures talk about this. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. The circumcision of Christ was, is baptism. Now I have a little more text to deal with. Let me go ahead and, and, and take these two big sections and do them rather quickly. Then Abram fell on his face, and he laughed. And he said to himself, So shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Then Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. First thing that starts is Abraham is like bursting out in laughter. Some people will say, like, is this Abram dis disbelieving God? I don't believe this is Abram disbelieving God. Romans 4.20 says that Abram did not waver in unbelief. This is Abram going, I don't understand how you can do this. I'm 100. She's 90. People don't get pregnant at that age. This is Abram struggling to understand El Shaddai the God who can do anything and save anyone. The other thing he does, he says, why do we have to have another child? Why can't we just go with Ishmael? 
And if you think back upon this, you know the answer. The reason that God can't go with Ishmael is because the platform of Abram's life was that God would rescue him at the point of no return with a son. You can't go with Ishmael because he was naturally conceived. Isaac, at 90 and 100, for Sarah and Abram, would be almost supernaturally conceived. So that's why you have to go with Isaac. But here's the cool part. Even though Ishmael was conceived in adultery, even though Ishmael was conceived out of sin, Abram still loves his kid, and God is so gracious. God is so kind, and he still blesses Ishmael anyway. He doesn't nuke him. He doesn't kill him. He blesses him. Now, folks, if somebody is pregnant out of wedlock, and a child has been conceived in a way that wouldn't be honoring to God, you know the really cool part? God still blesses that child. God still loves that child. God still uses that child. That's the story of Ishmael. You may not have been conceived in a God-honoring way, but God can still honor and will honor your life. Last point. A little humor here, guys, so you'll like this. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. Then Abram took Ishmael, his son, and all those in his house and he bought with, that he bought with his money, and every male among the men of Abram's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day... Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in his house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised by him. And what I love with this is Abram's swift response to what was obviously a very painful and hard-to-do job. I mean, can't you just picture how this breaks down? We know from previous messages that he had an, a personal army of 318 men. How many men are in his house? 1,000? 1,500? Can you picture this? 99-year-old Abram like pulls everybody you know, down to the break room and says, we're going to have a working lunch. Uh, guys, get in the line. We're doing a group circumcision. By the way, I, I can't see too well. I'm 99. My hand's a little shaky, but I've got a sharp object. It's like, get in line, we're doing everybody at once. Well, this is sort of what happens. But what I want to point out to you is Abram has a swift and prompt response to a very hard calling of God. Because he didn't just circumcise everybody else. He was circumcised too. Folks, when God calls you to do something, in particular when it's hard, you don't procrastinate. When you realize that you offended somebody and you hurt somebody with your words, you don't put it on a list and say, I'm going to get to it today. That very day, you make the phone call and ask for forgiveness. When you realize you left the house that morning and you said something to your wife that really irritated her, you don't sit there and go, well, I'll just wait till tonight or maybe this weekend when she's calmed down and then we'll just try and reconcile. That very day, you go out of your way to do what is hard and reconcile and restore. Here's the point. When you know what God wants you to do, 
Don't procrastinate, even if it hurts. Now, let me just wrap around some of the applications that you read, we looked at this morning. Number one, when God is silent, it doesn't mean He isn't working. Thirteen-year silence between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. God hadn't lost track of Abram. He hadn't lost track of his life. That long silence was for a reason. He had to wait till he was beyond human hope to give him a son. Secondly, God is El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. He loves to save against insurmountable odds. God's specialty is coming to the rescue in hopeless situations. If you are a Christian, what happened in the Bible today is not just in the Bible. It is happening. It will happen in your life. You will face insurmountable, hopeless situations. And those are the very times that God wants to come to the rescue and proclaim His name to you as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Number three, a covenant is, ba- is not based on obedience, but it requires obedience. Just like a marriage covenant, your faithfulness to your spouse is not based on their obedience and love to you, but it's a lot more enjoyable when there is faithfulness to that covenant. Number four, God cares about the circumcision of our hearts more than the circumcision of our bodies. Men in particular, I'm speaking to you, circumcise your hearts. Set your hearts apart to be a man after God, a man who loves Jesus Christ, compassion and care and worship. God cares about your heart more than He cares about a particular mark on your body. Number five, when I know what God wants me to do, don't procrastinate, even if it hurts. Jump to it right away, just like we see Abram did. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this long text and even a tough talk on something like circumcision. But I thank you, Jesus. I thank you so much that what matters, Lord, is our heart towards you. Thank you, Jesus, also for the covenant love you have displayed to Abraham that even when he was unfaithful to you, you stayed faithful to him. And I pray... Lord, I thank you that even when we are unfaithful to you, that you stay faithful to us. And I pray that as we experience your faithful to us, our faithfulness to us in midst of our failures, that we would extend that same kind of covenant love to those who are, who are married to our spouse and to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we faithfully forgive and continue to love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.